a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit, and we ask now that you would bless this time, that as we sit with your scriptures, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would reveal yourself to us and move us, that we may love you and love one another more deeply, more sincerely, and that we might grow up in the likeness of Jesus in all ways. Uh, we pray through his name. Amen. In our society's public conversation about what it looks like for us to seek justice in the face of injustice and violence, the phrase thoughts and prayers uh, has become something of a joke in recent years, right? It's had, it's had a rough couple of years on the internet, and maybe you're familiar with the hashtag thoughts and prayers. It often trends in the wake of a disaster or a tragedy as this phrase, thoughts and prayers, has been increasingly lampooned in, as a platitude that politicians offer instead of real action, or even as being a kind of political sleight of hand by which our empowered representatives uh, seem to evade their responsibility to do something, right, when something needs to be done. 
I'm sure many of you have seen that meme that, that has gone around of the, it's the picture of the big empty box truck, the delivery truck with the back open and the thing's empty and the caption reads, you know, good news, the first truckload of your thoughts and prayers has just arrived. Uh, and if you're someone who values prayer, if you're someone who prays, that kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? But at the same time, if you're someone who desires justice and who values personal integrity, it also sort of rings true, right? There's something that feels woefully incomplete or disingenuous about the quote-unquote thoughts and prayers that don't lead to action or that even worse seem contradictory to the actions and commitments of whomever's offering them. And so those kind of thoughts and prayers, they do, they feel hollow, they feel hypocritical, not very helpful. And regardless of your own political leanings or loyalties, it's probably not hard to think of some recent examples that just prove that to be true, right? I mean, the critique holds water, and so for those willing to listen, we have, we have much to learn from it. But I think also as we, as we just consider this whole thoughts and prayers thing and the phenomenon that it's become on the internet, it's, it's about a lot more than simply a thoughtful needed critique of something that needs to be called out. You know, the subtext, whether it's implied or overtly stated, is often actually a thoroughly cynical view of prayer itself, uh, especially with respect to prayer as a legitimate means of seeking justice on behalf of those who have suffered injustice. And as one comedian says in his bit on thoughts and prayers, you know, do you know what that's worth? Nothing. Less than nothing. Or as the New York Daily News ran a headline after the San Bernardino shootings, it said right on the front page, God isn't fixing this. With images framing around this headline, images of tweets from various public figures about their thoughts and prayers. And so what began as this incisive critique of insincerity, it has swelled into this viral wave of cynicism about the value and the efficacy of prayer in general, even sincere prayers that flow from a genuine longing for justice and peace. And that's the context we live in, right? That's the air we breathe. That's, That's our moment. And so as we read a parable like this from Jesus, like this is... This is the moment we live in, in which we read a parable about prayer. But here's the thing. If we take Jesus and the story of the gospel seriously, what we begin to see is that both the insincerity and the cynicism that are caught up in this weird standoff in this, you know, hashtag thoughts and prayers phenomenon, both, Jesus shows us, are dead-end roads, actually, And this is where the parable of the unjust judge helps us to see something very important about what it means for us to be seekers of justice in the world. Because in this parable, Jesus has something significant to say about justice and what it looks like for us to participate in it. And he also has something significant to say about prayer. And rather than splitting these two things apart as both insincerity and cynicism or want to do, Jesus holds them together. And in doing so, he illumines for us really an entirely different way forward, this way of being prayerful participants with God in God's mission of establishing his kingdom 
of justice and peace on the earth. So let's just reflect on this parable together. First, just trying to get a sense of the story and what it's about, and then unpacking together what I think are the two main points uh, that Jesus and Luke are making uh, as they give us this parable. So first, let's just look at this story. What, what is it about? Well, we know that the gospel writer Luke begins this section, because we can read it in verse 1. It begins by telling us what the story's about, which is kind of weird, actually. It's like a, a spoiler with no spoiler alert. It's a little uncharacteristic for Luke. Um, so he begins by saying, Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. But then the parable that follows is a little confusing. And as we read it, we might be wondering, like, okay, what is Jesus commending as he tells this story? Is he commending a kind of, let's call it squeaky wheel spirituality, uh, an approach to praying always that flows from a view of God as being, like, fundamentally withholding and grouchy? but also susceptible to being worn down by, like, annoying, repetitive petitions. Because if you read this parable one way, it does kind of sound like that, right? And, and if you read it that way, you know, it, it seems like maybe Jesus is casting a vision of this seasoned, mature prayer life that sounds a lot like my preschool-age kids when they come down in the morning and they're trying to get my attention when my attention is devoted elsewhere. And it's like, Daddy, 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 daddy. And it's like, hold on one second, daddy, daddy. Can we watch a show now? 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 And I, true confession, I am susceptible to being worn down by annoying repetitive petitions, probably more so than I'd like to admit. Yes, you can watch a show now, right? Uh, Screen time, who cares? But that's not what Jesus is saying God is like in this parable. Nor is that the kind of way of approaching God in prayer that Jesus is commending in this parable. So what is he talking about then? Well, I think Jesus is making two main points in this parable. One is about the character of God as a God of justice. And another is about our calling to trust God and to join him in pursuing justice. And to make these two points, Jesus uses these two main characters in the parable. And so first, he uses this character of the unjust judge, kind of oddly, to portray God as both committed to justice and responsive to the prayers of his people. Let's look at how that's the case. So this unjust judge, he's kind of a cartoonish anti-hero figure, right? He's twice described as one who neither fears God nor has respect for the people. And once he's described that way by, by Jesus, the narrator. And then another time he's described that way in his own words. It's like, it is I, the one who respects no one and does not fear God. It's, just, it's this weird kind of cartoonish figure. And this way of describing him, I don't, it could be lost on us. I mean, maybe we would read that as, I don't know, maybe it's a way of describing the judge as impartial. He's not afraid of anybody, so maybe, maybe he's a good judge. But in the thought world of Jesus and Luke, that's, that's not what's being said of the judge. To, to be described as one who neither fears God nor respects people is a way of 
of negatively characterizing this judge as a shady guy. Uh, it's a decidedly negative characterization. It's as someone who doesn't love justice. This is someone who doesn't have regard for God's law and the provisions for justice that God has put, in, in, put into his law. And it's a, it's a guy who's driven only by self-interest. He's, he's shady. And what's going on in the story is that this widow is coming to this judge seeking justice. And presumably, the widow's petition is based on the law that God gave to the people of Israel, in which God has made special provisions for people who are in special situations of vulnerability, like widows and orphans, foreigners. But the judge doesn't care about any of that. And so he refuses to grant her justice, but the widow doesn't give up. She keeps pleading her case. And eventually, the unjust judge, who doesn't care about her at all, who doesn't care about the law at all, eventually he's, he just throws up his hands and says, fine, justice granted. Not because I care about you, not because I care about the law, not because I care about doing the right thing, but because I'm annoyed. And entirely in the spirit of self-interest, I grant you justice so that you will go away. You're killing me over here. The language about being uh, worn out is like boxing ring language. It's like you're beating me black and blue over here. Like just go away. And Jesus says, in effect, look, if even the unjust judge who cares not at all about justice or about victims of injustice, if even that unjust judge will respond to petitions and grant justice, how much more will God respond to those who cry out to him? How much more will God hear the cries of the people whom he loves? If The judge who has utter disregard for everything but his own self-interest will after a while grant justice. How much more will God, who loves justice, who has promised to bring his kingdom of justice, who has granted his law toward that end, how much more will God hear the cries of his people? and grant them the justice they seek. And so Jesus is making the point that God's trustworthy, that God intends to actually keep his promise, and that we can trust God to bring that which he has promised to establish upon the earth. And we can trust that he hears our prayers. We can trust that he will respond. But there's more. See, as Jesus develops this theme, he, he, he lands in a place where he brings up the Son of Man. Um, and actually, Luke situates this whole parable in a larger section of his gospel about the kingdom of God and how it relates to this figure called the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is this figure that comes from the book of Daniel. is an apocalyptic figure that is portrayed in this vision of, you know, like riding on the clouds and coming and bringing in this sort of glorious, triumphant moment God's reign upon the earth. And, uh, and so this, in this larger section where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and he's relating it to the, to the Son of Man, um, he's talking about how what, what people want to see 
What people desire is to see and experience the fullness of God's kingdom now in this way where where the triumph of God's goodness over evil is ushered in quickly and it's made visible in a way that's just undeniable. That full triumph and glory that is depicted in this vision of the coming of the Son of Man. But Jesus says in this larger section, he says, but that's that's not how it's going to work right now. It's not how it's going to play out because before the Son of Man comes in glory, he must suffer. And what he begins to tease out in that section uh, is, is that adversity is not a sign that God has given up on us or that God has forgotten about his promise or that God is choosing to look the other way in the face of of tragedy and violence and injustice. Adversity, rather, and suffering are actually integral to the process by which God is rescuing his people and his world from injustice. And that's the story of the cross of Christ that we see play out as the gospel story unfolds. In other words, if we can borrow the phrase from the New York Daily Post headline, It isn't that God isn't fixing this. It's that God's way of establishing justice and peace on earth isn't going to be through any quick fix, despite the fact that there are many times where that is exactly what we want him to do. But what the gospel of Jesus makes so abundantly clear, regardless of how we think about our circumstances or interpret the good, bad, or indifferent of what God may be doing in any given moment, what the gospel makes so abundantly clear is that God cares so deeply about justice and he cares so deeply about victims of injustice, so much so that in Jesus, God has actually come to be one of them, to become a victim of injustice, to bind himself to us in solidarity, to join us in our experience of living in the brokenness of this world even to die under the weight of that experience so that he may rise from it and bring us with him into this irreversible, everlasting new world order that is characterized by justice and peace and thriving life. It's this world order that he's established in his son and in his spirit and that he'll bring to completion at this glorious return of the son of man, Jesus. The fixing it, in other words, that God is up to, it runs just a lot deeper than all of our human programs and initiatives are able to address, which doesn't mean that God doesn't care about those things, right? The things we care about. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't also take up action in treating the symptoms. Of course we should, right? We absolutely must. If we're going to take seriously this life in God's kingdom of seeking that which God desires, we must take up the work of advocating for victims of injustice. We must use our words and our actions and our thoughts and our prayers and our money and our policy-making agency to seek justice and peace to the extent that we can. But what's important is that we recognize that what we're doing as we do that is we're not fixing the world. We can't fix the world. What's wrong with the world runs way too deep for us to be able to fix it. What's wrong with us runs too deep for us to be able to fix it. 
There's only one remedy for all of that, and it is this Jesus-initiating, full-blown, dying and rising and transforming the world that only God can do, but that God is doing and has done in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so what we're doing as we take up this life of participating with God in seeking justice It's not fixing the world, but rather it's bearing witness to, it's embodying this kingdom of God that God has planted among us in his son and by his spirit and that he's promised to bring in fullness at the end. And we participate in that. We order our life together in a way that fits God's dream for his world. And we bear witness to the reality that God will bring it in fullness one day. And Jesus asks this question, when the Son of Man comes, like when that day does come, what will he find? Will he find the faith on earth? And Jesus uses this character of the widow to illustrate illustrate the kind of resolute faithfulness to which God is calling his people to live with in the time between the times, right? In this moment between the coming of Christ and his return. And the faith, this kind of resolute faithfulness that's modeled here, it's not, it's not this picture of being annoyingly repetitive without end. But rather, it's this picture of being unswervingly persistent in seeking the justice that God promises even over the long haul of life lived under the thumb of injustice. This is the widow's life. This is her situation. She lives with the reality of her vulnerability. She lives as one who's an outcast, as one who has nothing, and yet she persists. Yet she continues to move forward in light of what God has promised and in light of what God may provide. And Luke tells us that the whole point of this story is to illustrate the the need for Jesus' disciples to pray always and not lose heart. I don't know about you, but I don't pray always. Do you? Um, And as, as I've been following Jesus now for, I guess, I don't know, 17, 18 years of my life, there's probably not any season of life where I would say I am, I am satisfied with my life of prayer at this time. I mean, there have been seasons of greater health. There have been seasons of lesser health. I don't think there's ever been a moment where in terms of quantity and quality, I'm, I'm actually saying, yes, this is what it ought to be. And my guess is that for most of you, that's also true. That as you think about your own life of prayer, that there's something more that that you're wanting or a sense that there's more there to be experienced than what you are experiencing. And as I've been kind of reading and reflecting on on prayer this this past week, just thinking about this parable, uh, I was reading a a book by Marva Dawn as she's talking about, about Sabbath and resting in prayer. And she has this wonderful little story about her own prayer life and feeling guilty about its, its lack of health. And there's this story that she tells about confessing to an old wise pastor that her prayer life is just horrible. And she says that this old pastor, he, he heard that 
And he just smiled and he said, don't worry about that. Christ prays for you. And she said it was this moment of turning the focus where the guilt that had often paralyzed her, this guilt for not praying more or praying better, just began to dissipate. And that idea of like, it's that we ought to improve our spiritual practices, that that began to just dissipate. And what instead began to emerge was this beautiful picture of a God who turns toward her so clearly and so committedly and so persistently in Christ, a God who even is praying for her as she forgets to pray, that that picture of God began to move her into a deeper, more robust engagement in prayer. It's a beautiful picture, and it's one that resonates a lot with me as I've sort of felt like I ought to, I ought to, I ought to. It's like, no, what I really need is not, is not primarily some sort of adrenaline shot or some boot camp for spiritual disciplines. What I need is a picture of the God who is there. What I need is a clearer glimpse of the beauty and the life that is in God himself. You know, Eugene Peterson, uh, in his reflections on prayer and on this parable, uh, he notes that, uh, that one of the reasons we get sideways in our life of prayer is that we make it too much of a thing in itself. And he, he notes that, you know, in the biblical story, there's really very little interest in prayer, like, as a thing. There are all kinds of um, examples of men and women praying. And we have, like, the Psalms, this incredibly comprehensive documentation of prayer. And we see Jesus leading a life um, as an exemplar of prayer. But there's very little on, like, the how-tos of prayer, Right? As a, or there's very little that isolates prayer as a topic. Rather, what we have is simply people at prayer, Peterson says, people praying. And as I was thinking about that in, in connection with just the way that we think about conversational skills and how if all you're thinking about is how to do a conversation, or if you're ever in conversation with someone who's just taken a conversation class and you can hear some of the techniques coming back at you, you realize like there's a bit of a disconnect between person and person because we're getting fixated on the methodology, right? But there's something really beautiful about prayer uh, that we miss when we think too much about prayer. And what Peterson is saying is like, look, pray. God is there. And the life of praying always that's exemplified in this persistent widow who comes time and time again, it's not in the poetry of her petition. It's not in any kind of repetition or methodology that she's employing. Rather, she's simply doing it because it's an outflow of her life inside of a world in which this is what you do. And similarly, as we think about what does it mean to be prayerful people and to pray always, what does it look like to simply live in communion and conversation with the God who is there, with the God who loves you and is for you and is so committed to you and to his world that he's come to be here in person in our world in Jesus, and he's come to dwell in you and among you and with us in his spirit. And he says, join me in this work of seeking my kingdom. Marva Dawn, as she reflects on why we don't pray, she, no she notes all kinds of things like self-obsession and pride or our, our fixations on material goods or security or prestige or our view of God or just our lack of believing that it's effective, all this stuff, right? 
But then she, she lifts our eyes to this moment where she says, can you see the God who turns toward us? who invites us to turn toward him. And as you think about our own role of seeking justice in the world, or our own role of being human, and we're trying to put that on, we're trying to move forward and to grow up as human beings or to, to be human in the world in a way that's good and right and makes sense, can you see that prayer actually is action? Sincere prayer will never be words alone, right? But a prayerful life is one that involves not just our lips, but our lives. Not just our words, but our actions. The whole self, our whole being, as we live toward God and toward God's world in a way that's in union and communion with Christ. That fits God's vision for the world and for how we would be human in it. So this week, as you just think about what it looks like to join God and to be prayerful participants with him and what he's doing in the world, can you recognize the beauty of his presence with you? Can you recognize all the little and big ways that God turns toward you over and over and over again? All the ways that God sticks with you over the long haul. And can you recognize the beauty and the surety of his promise that the world he's bringing is this world of justice and peace, and flourishing in the earth. And that world is what he calls us to embody together through our actions, through our prayers, through all that we are, all that we have, and all that we do. Can you let that vision for your life stoke your imagination? And can you see that as God unleashes us into his world, that's our mission not to fix it, but to join him in this grand mission of this dying and rising love that brings forth the very healing of ourselves and of the earth. This is our mission, this is our calling, and this is God's great promise to us. The one who calls us is faithful. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for the good news of Jesus. We give you thanks for the way that you love us in Christ. We give you thanks that you have not given up on your world, uh, but that you are absolutely committed to bringing the whole story of humanity to its full, mature, beautiful conclusion that justice and peace and life may flourish upon your earth forever. Would you make us a people of hope? And would you make us a people of action? And would you make us a people of sincerity? And would you make us a people of prayer? who trust you and who ask you to do beautiful and powerful things. And as we do that, would you transform us more and more into the likeness of your son, that we would love what you love, that we would love whom you love, and that we would become human in a more glorious and beautiful way, that when the son of man comes, he may find faith on the earth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.